invite you to turn with me this morning to James 4. Terry asked me to pull the mic down so I could be heard better, and I asked him, was that a short joke? <laughs> he just said, kind of, so I have to talk to him more about that later. And, and surprisingly, that's not the first time I've heard jokes like that. James chapter 4. Our focus is going to be this morning on verses 11, or I mean 13 through 17, but I'm going to begin reading in verse 1. But first, let's ask the Lord for his help. Our Father, we are so thankful. You are the love that will not let us go. Nothing can snatch us from your hand. Nothing in this life and no one, Satan himself, can remove us from your love. That is our hope as sinners who are saved by grace, by you, Lord Jesus through your work in our lives, Holy Spirit. That is the hope we pray that you will pour out upon Lee and Nancy now in this trial they experience. That even today, apart from their family here, this church, you will minister unto them, you will draw near to them, and they will know sweetest consolation in you. Be with us now as we come to your word. Holy Spirit, open our hearts and eyes to these most wonderful truths. We pray in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have, because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive, because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you suppose it is to no purpose that the scripture says, he yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us? but he gives more grace. Therefore it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves therefore to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, 
And purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you. Do not speak evil against one another, brothers. The one who speaks against a brother or judges his brother speaks evil against the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge. There is only one lawgiver and judge. He is able to save and destroy. But who are you to judge your neighbor? Come now, you who say, Today or tomorrow we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. So whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him, it is sin. This is the word of God. How pleasant are the thoughts that wander throughout our minds as we dream the dreams of success. Every one of us has a dream of success. Sometimes those dreams can be realistic and then The things we seek are attainable goals in our lives, but we can't get them without initiative. 36 years ago, I was very proud of those words. Can't believe it's 36 years ago. I was speaking at my high school graduation on the topic of initiative. Don't worry, I was not the valedictorian and I wasn't even close. But somehow I got to speak. But there was a problem. In God's common grace, many of the things I was saying were fine. You know, we have dreams and we pursue them. Sometimes they're realistic. And if you're uh, going to attain those goals, you need initiative. And I'm sure in my speech, I can't remember, I probably said Webster's Dictionary defines initiative as, and I don't remember what the definition was, this idea of striving and taking great effort mentally and physically to accomplish what we desire. That's fine. But there was a problem. I didn't know the Lord at that time. And in the midst of talking about such things, I had no thought of God. It wasn't so much what I was saying, but what or who I was leaving out. 
this idea that whatever we put our minds to, we can accomplish. Now, even in that, even in that speech, you know, I recognize that sometimes we have goals that are what my friend used to say are pipe dreams, something you're never going to accomplish. You're just hallucinating if you think you're going to accomplish them. I saw that then in God's common grace. He even shared that poem by Stephen Crane. I don't think it ever originally had a title. It was about a man pursuing the horizon. You know, you, you look off into the distance and you see the horizon and you can run after it, but you never get it. It always keeps moving, right? So this poem is about a man pursuing the horizon. It goes like this. I saw a man pursuing the horizon. Round and round they sped. I was disturbed at this. I accosted the man. It is futile, I said. You can never, you lie, he cried and ran on. This poem about a man who was pursuing something he could never accomplished. Now, in a sense, I got that right, too, but still, I was leaving God out and failing to see that whatever we pursue in life is of no value at all without a relationship to the Lord. And that is exactly what James is addressing in this passage. As he talks to, in a context where as far as we can tell, he's, he's addressing professing believers, as we see in the verses before this particular passage. Merchants who were buying and selling. They had plans. They had dreams of making money. And yet they were forgetting God. You know, when I gave my speech... I probably would have told you God existed once I got into college, then I became an atheist. But I was living as a practical atheist, and we can as Christians as well, in the plans that we pursue, the dreams we chase, the decisions we make in this life. And so here's my challenge from this passage that In our lives, in all that we pursue, in all the plans we make, my brothers and sisters, let us learn more and more to humbly entrust everything to the Lord. When we look at this passage in a book that you know, maybe you've heard this. James is the Proverbs of the New Testament. And there's much of a focus on how we live the Christian life in wisdom. How faith without works is dead. How what you believe in your head has to be intimately related to how you live 
if you have a relationship with Jesus Christ. It led Martin Luther to claim that this somehow was contradictory to Paul's doctrine of justification and shouldn't even be in the New Testament. Whereas James is sim simply saying, we show our faith by our works, by our life. And there's a lot of practical advice in here about living wisely. About the fact that, you know, in this life, you have a lot of trials to undergo. And James says, count it all joy when you enter into these things. Temptations. He's talking about being humble and submitting to the Lord and receiving the word of God in submission and being doers of the word and not hearers only. So lots of sound advice, a lot of wisdom to be granted and even young children can learn and we ought to teach them that wisdom isn't simply what we know but how we take what we know, especially from the truth of God's word, and live it out. It is living skillfully according to the truth of God's word. And so he comes to address this group of people in the church who are carrying out their plans, but foolishly. He deliberates with them, come now. You who say today or tomorrow we will go to such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. Okay, let's look at those words just by themselves. Is there anything wrong with those words by themselves? I, I got plans. You know, I don't know everybody's uh, occupation here. Maybe we have some businessmen. You know, if I were to come to you and say, hey, is it okay to plan to go somewhere and to buy and sell? And, and to make money? Is that wrong? No. That's not what James is saying. He's addressing an issue in their lives, and I think we see it in the, in the previous context as we hear that in verse 6, God opposes the proud. He gives grace to the humble, and as a result, in the next verse, James says, Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Bow before the Lord in everything. Verse 10, Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you. You want to succeed? You don't succeed by striving in your strength but by humbling yourself before the Lord. And who did that perfectly? Jesus Christ, the Messiah. The disciples misunderstood. You know, he wasn't the Messiah riding in on a 
horse to conquer and release them from Roman oppression. He conquered by humbling himself, by suffering. That is how he won the victory. And that is what James is saying to us. We need to humble ourselves before the Lord if we're to be victorious. And so, the issue is not that these guys are, are going to a town to make money, but they're, they're doing it in pride, full of themselves, boasting in arrogance. And James turns to them and says, how can you, how can you be so confident in yourself? You don't even know what is going to happen tomorrow. Just like we read in Proverbs, right? I think it's Proverbs 28. Boast not yourself of tomorrow, for you do not know what a day may bring forth. What is your life? You're a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. You boil a pot of water on the stove. You lift the lid and the steam comes up. And it's gone. That's your life, relatively speaking. You know, I, I, I gave that graduation speech 36 years ago. It seems like yesterday. I, I can't remember the speech like it was yesterday, but that 36 years has gone by like that. Compared to eternity, it's all in a moment. We are finite creatures before an eternal God who holds everything in his hands. Instead, he says, here's what you ought to say as you make your plans to go and, and trade and make money. If the Lord wills, we will do this or that. But instead, you're confident in yourself, and that's boasting, and that's arrogance. And that's exactly what I struggled with at that time when I gave that graduation speech. I didn't come to know the Lord until four years later. I believed, even though I saw that, uh, you know, there were things you could pursue that were unrealistic. I, I, I knew, for example, standing there, I couldn't say, you know what, I, I think I'm going to be a professional football player. I knew that wasn't unrealistic, but I knew as I was pursuing my dreams, I was going to do it in my strength. I was going to do this. Nothing could stop me. Don't stand in my way. I'm going to be victorious. And James says, no, what you need to say is if the Lord wills, 
we will live or do this or that. Now, it isn't so much about the words here. It is about the relationship that somebody has and the attitude of heart. Because to say, if the Lord wills truly in my heart, is to submit myself to that Lord and to approach him through Jesus Christ. Not much explicit mention of Christ in here, but he's through all the pages of this book. As I saw one article, the writer said, the wisdom is not a what, but a who. As we consider in 1 Corinthians 1 that Jesus is called the wisdom of God, our wisdom. He is perfect wisdom. Proverbs, this writer says, are wrapped up in the flesh in Jesus Christ. He embodied it. And he is perfect wisdom for us. He showed us what it is to live skillfully. He showed us what it, what it is to live humbly before the Father. He showed us in the Garden of Gethsemane when he wrestled with the fact that he was going to be dying on the cross. And he said, Father, if you're willing, let this cup pass from me. We know the words well, don't we? What comes next? Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. He did that perfectly for us who fail miserably in living humbly before the Lord and walking in wisdom. And as he's done that for us, and lived it and died for our failures that we might be delivered. He now gives us this example to have this attitude of heart, to remember there is a Lord who is in control of all of my circumstances. You know, we can do it in our catechism very well, what are God's acts of providence? God's acts of providence are his most holy, wise, and powerful, preserving and governing all his creatures and all their actions. And we know it well. But when things get tough, we show how little we really believe it. I know. I know you govern all things, Lord, but I don't want things to be governed quite this way right now. And our theology is really put to the test. And so, oh yeah, I've said it many times. Lord willing, when I tell people I'm going to do something, You know, maybe I, I, I have plans to meet Terry for lunch tomorrow, and I could say, Lord willing, Terry, I'll see you tomorrow. Do we have, or is James telling us that's what you need to say whenever you tell people your plans? No. 
But it does need to be the attitude of your heart that you remember that in, in your life, in all that you seek to do, in all the little decisions you make, everything needs to be submitted to the Lord. Now, we can carry too far the other way, and I think we do in Reformed churches when we pray. We often pray like that, Lord, if it's your will, please heal so-and-so, or, you know, Lord, if it's your will. And, and that's a fine prayer, but we're, God gives us warrant to pray with great expectation, Lord, please do this. And if we pray that way, crying out to the Lord, begging him for something, that doesn't necessarily mean, my brothers and sisters, that we're not submitting to his secret will that he's in control of all things. And, and by the way, there's something to be said here as we, if we're Christians, we want to know the will of God for our lives. And James is saying, here's what James is saying basically in this letter, without coming out and explicitly saying this. The will of God for you is you being doers of the word he has revealed. His revealed will and the will of God, and, not or, and the will of God is his secret will that he controls and he unfolds before us in our lives, and he hasn't let us know until he does it. And that doesn't mean there are two wills of God, the secret will and the revealed will. They work together. And so Moses, and I had a systematic theology teacher, used to say this all the time. Sometimes I think he would use it out of context, maybe. Whenever there was an answer, somebody asked them a question, and, and there wasn't really an answer revealed in Scripture. He would just say, Deuteronomy 29, 29. Anybody know that verse? The secret things belong to the Lord our God, but that which he has revealed belong to us and to our children that we may do all the words of this law. They go together. God's in control. He has a will from eternity past. His eternal counsel that is being unfolded in history. And it belongs to him. And he decides what's going to happen in your lives as they unfold. And what does he want you to do? He doesn't want us to wring our hands and, I need to make sure I'm in the center of God's secret will. And I, I used to live that way. I, I thought as a young Christian that's how I ought to do. And I was wrestling with whether I ought to go into the ministry. And I closed my eyes and opened my Bible, put my finger down. And I came upon the verse, be not unwise, but understand what the will of the Lord is. And I decided, that means I must go into the ministry. When what Paul was talking about was the will of God that's revealed in Scripture. And living in wisdom. But it's good that we decide, desire to know his will. And his will is according to his word. And these rich merchants weren't living in wisdom according to God's word. And they weren't allowing God to be God. 
that poem, oh, the name is escaping me now. William Ernest Henley. And somebody who knows literature can correct me later if I'm incorrect about that. Poem and eventually got the title Invictus, but it, it didn't have a title at first. And at the end of the poem, he says, here's closing lines, I am the master of my fate, the captain of my soul. And basically what he was saying with a sort of a stoic, stiff upper lip British mentality in the late 1800s, I'm going to go through the hard times and I will not be conquered. I will succeed. I will make it. And that's the type of mentality that people can often have. But these are, we are not. I thought it at the time when I was 17 years old. But we are not, my brothers and sisters, the master of our fate or the captain of our soul. God is. And the more humbly we submit to that, the better off we are and the more we will succeed. There's the irony a beautiful, glorious irony. And I'm not saying let go and let God passively, and if it's going to happen, it's going to happen. I'm saying as we live according to God's word, we entrust everything to him because things don't go the way we plan, do they? We get sick. Financial calamities come. Cancer comes. People die. Loss occurs. Disasters take place. And have you ever been there with me? I've, I've been there with this response. I don't have time for this now. And we might not say it directly to God. Sometimes we may. Or, how about this one? It wasn't supposed to happen this way. And we somehow think, even though we're not explicitly thinking it, that everything's supposed to go the way I want it. I'm the guy with the plan. I used to say to my kids when we were traveling, we had a minivan then. I'm the driver man. Understand? You do my plan or get out the van. We get confused. Life is about my plan. No, it isn't. It's about the Lord's plan. And he does have a plan for you. He wants you to humble yourselves within it. There will be great success. Put away this idea. I'm the master of my fate, the captain of my soul. Even in the hardest times, 
Remind yourself that the more I humbly submit to him, the better off I will be even in the greatest pain I can suffer. We don't need to resist him. We can cry out for deliverance and healing and success, and that's all fine. While with the attitude of heart, we can still amazingly rejoice in the midst of the trials, as James bids that we do. Let's pray. Our Father, forgive us. We are so easily given to an attitude of life that wants our plan to be done at all costs. We would be the driver man. And how foolish is that? Instead of submitting to you. And Christ our Savior, who perfectly humbled himself to the point of death. You, Lord Jesus, humbled yourself for us. You entrusted everything to the Lord. You left us an example. You did it for us and left us an example that we would follow in your steps. Please grant that we will do that. We pray all of it in your name. Amen.